Good morning. It's good to see all of you here. We're grateful for you joining us. I want to thank all of you who are sitting up in the choir loft this morning. Thank you for sitting up there and giving us a little extra space out there. Some would say you have the best view in the house. I don't know that for sure. I'll leave that for you to determine. Nonetheless, it is good to have all of you who are joining us here this morning in this house. All of you who are joining us from your house this morning online, we are very grateful for your attendance and for your being here today. We are so glad that you have come to join us. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you please take them and turn with me once again to the Gospel of John and to chapter 18. John chapter 18. This morning we are continuing our sermon series that we began last week, which I have entitled, Looking to the Cross and the Empty Tomb. And really, what my goal for this entire series is for us to prepare our hearts as believers, for us to be prepared as we come to the time of celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, that we come and prepare our hearts for that great moment when we, when we contemplate what it means that Christ rose from the dead so that we might inherit eternal life. It is an absolutely phenomenal thing, and my goal this year is for it to be the greatest celebration that we've ever experienced in our lifetimes because we prepared our hearts systematically week by week as we look forward to the cross and the empty tomb. So that is, that is my un, unvarnished purpose for why we are going through this the way that we are and what I hope to accomplish. You know, as, as, as I was considering this week, the life and the ministry of Jesus as reported to us in the Gospels, you know, we realized rather quickly that the, He is the greatest power at work in the universe. I mean, consider the fact that when Jesus walked on the earth, all the things that He did, the miraculous things that He did, He healed the sick, He, he cast out demons, he, he raised the dead, He walked on water, He turned water into wine, He, he multiplied fish and loaves and fed multitudes of people. The fact is, the number of miracles that Jesus performed are greater than we can even comprehend. John even says in the final words of this gospel that we're studying, he says, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written in it. Can you, can you, content, can you imagine? There's more miracles and more things that Jesus did when he was on, on this earth than even the gospel writers have been able to communicate to us. It's no wonder that Satan hated him so badly. Satan, Satan wanted him to, he was terrified of him and he wanted Jesus dead, which is why when Satan realized what was happening, that the Messiah was going to be born, that, that he even uh, influenced Herod the Great to kill all the babies in and around the region of Bethlehem. He wanted, he wanted Jesus dead, but that, that attempt failed. And so later when Jesus went out into the desert, it was Satan who met him there in order to tempt him, in order to seduce him with the temptations of the wilderness, in order to cause his ministry to fall. But that temptation also failed. And so Satan had to go and try other methods. He, he tried to get Jesus uh, to fall prey to those uh, angry religious people. And every one of those attempts failed. Jesus was able to overcome them all. Why? Because it says it repeatedly throughout there, His hour had not yet come. His time had not yet come. But I want you to know all of that changes here in the latter part of John's Gospel. We began looking at that last week. John records for us the events that unfold on the last night that Jesus was alive, the last night before He was crucified on the cross. In fact, earlier on that same evening, Jesus records what 
or John records what Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 23. He knew what was about to occur. And so Jesus says, the hour has come that the Son of Man might be glorified. In other words, Jesus acknowledges that Satan would finally get what he had been after. In fact, while reclining at the table and eating the Passover meal together with his disciples, Jesus tells them that one of them would betray him. The scriptures go on to point out in John chapter 13 that Satan entered into Judas Iscariot who ultimately went out and he betrayed Jesus to the Jewish religious authorities. Satan finally had his man and he had his plan. All it took was 30 pieces of silver to convince one of Jesus' own to betray him. And so, as we read last week, Jesus in Jesus' high priestly prayer from John 17, Jesus knew what was about to happen, and that's why He prayed, Father, the hour has come. He knew that His death was, was imminent, but as we will see, that did not mean that Jesus was going to be defeated. In fact, rather than the Lord's death being victory for Satan, it would instead result in Satan's ultimate defeat and in the supreme glory of Jesus Christ. But let's see how the events unfold and from the perspective of the Apostle John. Begin reading with me there in John chapter 18. The first verse of that chapter reads this way, When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which He and His disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed Him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with His disciples. And then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am He. Therefore, if you seek Me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which He spoke, Of those whom you gave Me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank You for this day and for Your your Word that we have open in front of us. Lord, for the the truth that it, it teaches us and that it compels us to learn of You and to, to savor You and that which we learn about You in this Word. So I pray that that would be what we would be found doing this morning. I pray that our ears would be open and our hearts would be in tune with the Holy Spirit. That You would use this Word to bring conviction into our lives, 
Conviction that would cause us to repent of sin in our lives, but conviction also that we would take steps of obedient follower. That we would follow hard after you as a result of the time that we spend this morning hearing from you as you speak through your word. This is, this is my prayer. And I pray it in the name of Christ and for His sake. Amen. Now there are a number of interesting things about verse 1 that got my attention this week. And um, I'm just going to take a little bit of time and share them with you. And I hope that you will find them as interesting as I do. And if you don't, that's okay. Uh, but, but here's what I want you to see. There's, there's a lot that John talks about with regard to Jesus' movement in verse 1. And I think it's intentional, and I think it's on purpose, and I think it's important that we learn it. And, and it grabbed my attention. We, we know that Jesus has been in the upper room with His disciples. It's all the way back in John 13. He's been inside some house in the upper room of some house inside the walls of the city of Jerusalem all the way through John chapter 17 according to the way that John writes this gospel. But then we see that the first verse of chapter 18 gives us movement. And what it says is, is that Jesus went out with His disciples over the brook Kidron where there was a garden which He and His disciples entered at that time. So, I, 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 you know I love prepositions, so here's the prepositions. He went out, he went over, and he went in. There you go. You can outline it your best way, but let me tell you, he went out. He left the upper room. He went out from the upper room. He left, he left, not only did he go out of the upper room, he went out of the city. He went out of the city walls. He left where all of these millions of Jews had come and conglomerated together for the celebration of Passover. Jesus and his disciples went out from there and they went down the wall, down the mount from where the temple was. And then it says that they crossed over, over the brook Kidron. Now, most scholars will tell you that the brook Kidron was really not much more than a dry gulch at the time. It, it only had a lot of water in it when it was during the rainy season. And then that water that would fill into that dry gulch would run all the way down south into the Dead Sea. Jesus takes His disciples over that gulch. Now, we do not know how much water was in the brook at that point, but here's something else that's interesting about the brook Kidron. Kent Hughes tells us that there was a drain that came from the Temple Mount itself and funneled its way all the way down into that gulch where the blood of the sacrifices that were sacrificed in the temple, all of that blood would run from the Temple Mount all the way down that drain into that dry ravine and then catch the water that was flowing and it would take it all the way to the sea. Hughes estimates that at this time of year, at the time of Passover, it was likely that over 200,000 lambs had been sacrificed at the temple. Can you imagine the amount of blood that ran down that drain and into that ravine? Jesus takes His disciples out of the city. He takes them down the mount and He takes them across that ravine. And while we don't know how much water was in it, we have an idea of how much blood was in it. And it is my thought that the irony was not lost upon Jesus. That He was taking them across a ravine filled with blood of temple sacrifices when He Himself would become the one and only true sacrifice. But then the last part of the verse tells us this, He took them in or they went into or entered into a garden. And that is really what launches me into the, the, the things that I want us to see. I've got four hooks for you today, just things to help us center our thoughts as we work through. And, and what I want you to know is they entered a garden, and, and that introduces us the first hook that I want you to see, and it is the garden motif. 
This passage kind of gives us the intro to a garden motif that kind of continues to recur through the latter chapters of the Gospel of John. It's interesting, John doesn't, John doesn't name the garden, he just says that they went into a garden. We know it as the Garden of Gethsemane. But we know it is the Garden of Gethsemane, not because any writer ever calls it the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew, Mark, and Luke just say they, Jesus led them into Gethsemane. John says He led them into a garden. We, we take it and we merge those things together and we make it the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's not wrong, but I just want you to know that nomenclature is not actually used in Scripture. We just make it. We, we, we use it by way of amalgamation. We make it the Garden of Gethsemane. But that's where they go. And then that garden really becomes the way that John starts identifying things. In fact, John's the only one that refers to it as a garden, and many scholars propose that John is deliberately doing that in order to draw a comparison between this garden and the first garden, the Garden of Eden. Let me just point a couple things out to you. You could probably chase down quite a few more, but I would suggest this. The first Adam began his life in a garden. The second Adam, Christ came to the end of his life in a garden. In the Garden of Eden, Adam sinned, but in the Garden of Gethsemane, our Savior overcame sin. In the Garden of Eden, Adam fell, but in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus conquered. In the Garden of Eden, Adam hid himself. But it makes very clear from our text, in the Garden of Gethsemane, our Lord boldly presented Himself. As I said, there's probably a lot of other comparisons that could be made between them. I just want to point out to you, this is not the last garden that John identifies in his writing. In fact, we go on in, in chapter 19, verse 41, John tells us that, that the cross was in a garden. We also learned that the empty tomb was in a, in a garden. where there, The tomb in which Jesus was laid was also in a garden. And in fact, in chapter 20, verse 15, upon her arrival to that tomb when it was empty... Mary mistook Jesus for what? A gardener. That tells you where the tomb lay. So the garden motif that is introduced to us here in verse 1 is one that we're going to come back to again and again in our study of John. And what we realize is that John is highlighting for us the fact that Jesus' arrest, His crucifixion, and His resurrection, they all occur in a garden. And that repeated garden motif connects us back to the story of Genesis. I like what Edward Clink, who's written a really great commentary on the Gospel of John, he writes with regard to this connection between Genesis and the Garden of Eden and the gardens that occur at the end of John. He knows that both gardens saw the production of life and death, but the second reversed the order of the first. Notice, he says the first garden, the Garden of Eden, was a place where death was born out of life. But the second garden was the place where life was born out of death. Now, I want you to know, understanding that reversal and understanding what Jesus accomplished, that's what begins to open this text for us and helps us to be able to see why it's so incredibly important that we get our hands around it. Why as believers in Christ, we need to recognize that our life comes from the fact that Jesus died for us. He reversed the curse that was placed upon humanity in the Garden of Eden by His death and through His resurrection. We cannot miss that. If we do, we will fail to understand just how important the resurrection is for us, and we will fail to celebrate it properly. Now, there's your first hook. 
You can chew on that one the rest of the day, and that's fine. Let's get to the text in front of us here. That brings us to the second hook that I want you to see today. The second hook kind of comes from understanding of what occurs in the text beginning in verse 2, and there we see the betrayal of Judas. The betrayal of Judas. Many scholars point to the fact that there's a gap between what John writes in verse 1 and then what we begin reading in verse 2. And that gap is filled with all of the other information that we read in the other gospel accounts. And time doesn't permit me this morning, and by the way, you're very smart people, and there's great online resources. You can go back and it will show you how all of those things dovetail together. I would encourage you to do that. It helps you be able to see how everything in the Gospels align and harmonize with one another. I want to point you this morning, however, to verse 2 where Jesus is, is betrayed by Judas. John tells us that Judas knew where Jesus would be with his disciples. And why did he know where he would be? Because he knew he would be in, guard, in the garden, the place called Gethsemane, because that was a favorite spot of Jesus. He and his disciples had gathered there often. And so Judas knew where Jesus would be. And so according to verse 3, we see that Judas then leads a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. I want to highlight just a few things for you to ponder. First of all, Judas was, was one who had been with the Lord for perhaps three years, the last three years of his life. Judas was the one who had witnessed many of those miracles that we talked about earlier. Judas had been there. He had seen them with his own eyes. He had witnessed it. He had heard the messages that Jesus had preached. He, Judas had been privy to the, to the intimate teachings of Jesus that, that weren't dispersed out at large, but were in those, those quiet, small moments. Judas was there. Judas was so well respected among the other disciples around him, they considered him a brother in arms. He was the one who was allowed to carry the money bag with him. They trusted him. Judas was one who had an intimate relationship with Christ. And what is so amazing and yet is also utterly miserable to consider is that he wasted every bit of that. All of the blessings and the benefits that Judas had been gifted in his life meant nothing to him. He betrayed the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords for a mere 30 pieces of silver. Woe to us. Woe to us if we do not listen and we do not peer into this life. Those who looked upon Judas from the outside, as one writer has said, Judas did not appear to be as a monster. He was just simply selfish, which led to his insincerity as a disciple, and that led to theft as a man, and at length, it led to his perdition as a traitor. Another writer has lamented and warned this way. He says, oh, the awful possibilities when our heart is separated from divine grace. That's the first thing that I think we need to recognize about the betrayal that Judas tells us. But the second thing we should note is that Judas was not alone in accomplishing his mission. No, according to what we read there, there was at least two different groups of people who accompanied him. The first group that we read about was a detachment of troops, or as the ESV uh, translates it, there was a band of soldiers who went with Judas that, that fateful night. The detachment or band was really composed of about, as, as, they, as I've been able to study, about one-tenth of a legion of soldiers. And that equates to about as many as 600 men. 
No one knows exactly, but we're not talking about a dozen or two dozen fellows that went with him that night. No, we're talking hundreds. Hundreds that left and went down with him. Roman soldiers who were, who were skilled in the art of warfare. That was one group. The second group was, as John tells us there, the officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. These were the temple police. These were, these were Jewish men who oversaw law and order being, being taken care of in and around the temple itself. And we're not told exactly how many there were of, of each of these groups, but we know that it was a large mob. Luke says that there was a multitude. Matthew and Mark call it a great multitude. In other words, there was a very, very large number of bloodthirsty men who carried lanterns and torches and clubs and swords as they made their way down that temple mount coming toward the Garden of Gethsemane. Many of you know that I was afforded the wonderful and, and, and truly humbling opportunity to go and visit uh, Israel and, and, and it, this just last year, in January of last year, and I was able to be right there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so as I was reading and studying this week, I was just reminded of what it was like to stand there because as you're standing in the Garden, some of you have been there, so you know what I'm saying, as you're standing there in the Garden of Gethsemane, you can look up and you can see where the temple once was, where it stood, and you can see the walls of the city of Jerusalem that span all across. And you can see just how high it is, and you can imagine that trip down, winding its way down that mountain into that garden as Jesus and His disciples had done. Up to the left, if you're looking south, you would see the Mount of Olives. And, and at that time, there were just olive trees covering the mountain. And here, here in kind of the, the wedge between those two mounts, you find the Garden of Gethsemane. And what would have been very interesting that night, as, as the full moon would have been out, as the observance of Passover tells us that that would have been the case, on the darkness of that night, it would have been easy to have sat there in the middle of that garden and you could have seen those hundreds of lanterns and lights coming their way. And Jesus knowing that they're coming for Him. Now can you imagine this? You, I, I, I was imagining what it would have been like to have seen that overwhelming and powerful number of lights traveling to come get me. And it was a fearful thought. Oh, we get no fear in Jesus. Here's the other irony of it. Here you've got all of these hundreds of lanterns and, and torches making their way down the hill, and they're coming to arrest the one who is the light of the world. And he stands there without pretense and without protection. In fact, he goes out to meet them. Rather than hiding and running away, Jesus flips the script and runs to them. That brings me to the second, the second, excuse me, the third hook that I have for you on the outline. The third hook this morning is simply this. It's the majesty of Jesus. We have displayed for us very clearly the majesty of Jesus. Verse 4, Jesus therefore knowing all things that would come upon Him went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? He knew what was coming. He wasn't running away. He went forward to meet them as they made their way. Notice Notice, though, that the writer tells us, John tells us, that Judas is with the group that's coming down, not the group that he had always been with for the previous three years who were there. So we find out where Judas is standing. And then Jesus, as they say, whom are you seeking? He says, they say, Jesus of Nazareth. 
And then Jesus answers them and declares, I am he. Literally, in the Greek language, he answers, ego imi, which means I am. We provide and supply the he in the English language for it to make sense in our language. But literally, he says, ego imi. Now, what's interesting about that is, is that one of the other previous times that Jesus had said those words, ego imi, occurred in John chapter 8. And if you'll remember what happened in John chapter 8 when Jesus declared He was, or I am, the Jews around Him picked up rocks to throw Him, to kill Him, and to stone Him. Why? Well, because the name Ego in me, I am, was, was really clearly connected to the divine name of God, Yahweh, who Himself declared to Moses in the Old Testament, you tell Pharaoh that I am has sent you. I am the I am. And so that became the way that God was known among the Jews. He was known as the I am, Yahweh in, in Hebrew. When Jesus declared himself to be the I am, the Jews clearly recognized he was equating himself to God, that he was God. And so in John 8, they wanted to kill him. And here in John chapter 18, notice what happens. When they say, who do you want? Jesus says, whom are you seeking? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am, ego in me. And they all fall down. John tells us very clearly that, that they all fell, they drew back and fell to the ground. Here, here in this detail, we come across what I believe is another great irony that we shouldn't miss. You see, this massive crowd of hardened soldiers and police officers came with all their weapons. They came with their clubs and they came with their swords in order to arrest the Son of God who by the very announcement of His identity caused them all to fall to the ground like some sonic boom hit them, and they didn't even know it was coming. Now think about it. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the one whom John declares in the, is the very Word of God, the same Word which spoke and the earth and the universe and everything that was created came into existence. Well, here He speaks, and as one commentator puts it, at the sound of His voice, the multitude fell to the ground as if vanquished by a greater army. Another writer puts it this way, hundreds came to take His life and they could not make a claim on it because they were hopelessly and helplessly outnumbered by one. The puny and inconsequential nature of this multitude is on full display here but an even greater display is the majesty of Jesus. We must not miss it. Listen, if Jesus had chosen to resist, there was no army large enough to take Him. If Jesus had not allowed for it to occur, there was it would have been like ants making a charge against a human being only infinitely worse. Even Satan himself could not mount an attack upon the Lord Jesus that would accomplish anything were it not for the fact that Jesus allowed it to occur. That's important for you and for me to think about. I mean, if we are attached to Christ by faith, then we have no real reason to be worried or afraid. Have you ever considered that? 
If we are truly attached to Christ, what do we have to fear? Satan can throw anything and everything he's got at us, but it won't amount to hardly anything because we are on board with and we are attached to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's on our side. In his epic anthem, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, Martin Luther penned these words. He says, The Prince of Darkness Grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. In a very real sense, that's exactly what we see taking place here in this garden when Jesus says, Ego it. We see something else. John doesn't tell us how all these men got back up. <laughs> Somehow or another, Jesus obviously allowed them to get back up. And when they did, he gives them another chance. He says, now who was it that you were looking for? Now, I don't know about you. Todd, I'll, I'll just say this for me and you. I don't know, but, but I think Todd and I would have thought, I don't know, I, wasn't, I think I got it wrong. I'm looking for somebody else. Not these guys. These guys know they go right back to where they were. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Isn't that amazing? Here's what I want you to know. At this particular juncture, this entire group of people that had come with Judas become just like him. Because just like Judas, they had now experienced the power of God themselves firsthand, and so they stood before Jesus Christ without excuse. They had witnessed firsthand the power of Christ and yet they refused to bow before Him. They refused to recognize the majesty of Jesus. And so Jesus responds to them a second time. He says, I have told you that I am He. Therefore, if you seek Me, let these go their way. And then John explains that this was a fulfillment of the prayer that he prayed in John chapter 17, where he said, of those whom you have given Me, I've lost none. Now what we need to focus in on is that Peter ain't having any of this. He's had it up to here. And so right about this point, Peter pulls out his sword and you can just hear it ringing, can't you? Coming from his scabbard, you can hear the ring of that sword coming out. And then he swings and he cuts off the rear of this man named Malchus who was a servant of the high priest. And many have noted that Peter was either a skilled swordsman who could expertly lop off a man's ear in the dark with one swing or most likely... He was just a really bad shot. He was a fisherman after all, not a swordsman. It was dark. He most likely was looking to cut off Malchus's head, but he missed. And it bounced off either his shoulder or the side of his head and he cut off his ear. What we need to recognize is that Jesus immediately rebuked Peter and he told him to put his sword away. And the real thing that we ought to notice is, is that Peter was as guilty as the mob of misunderstanding the power of Jesus. Jesus has, with a word, just leveled His opponents. What did He need with, G with, with Peter's sword? James Boyce notes that Peter was courageous, but he was ignorant. Jesus can knock down a multitude. He didn't need a sword. Jesus... Jesus didn't need Peter's sword to save him because Jesus wasn't there to be saved. You, you, you get that? Jesus was not there to be saved by Peter. 
Jesus was there to save Peter and to save all who are sinners and who will come to him by faith. That brings me to the last hook of this passage. The last hook is this. It's the cup from the Father. The cup from the Father. Jesus asked Peter in verse 11, shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? Kent Hughes notes this. He says the cup was the cross and the cup was judgment that we should have drunk. Jesus took upon Himself our punishment in those hours of the darkness on the cross. Listen, friends, we could not have paid for our own sins. Even if we had been punished for all eternity, we have no ability to pay for our own sins. It is only Christ and Christ alone who can do it. Earlier in that evening, we recognized that Jesus had wrestled with the terror of the cup. In Matthew's Gospel, we read that He prayed, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but Thy will be done. But when we get to this point in John's Gospel, we see here clearly that Jesus is sovereignly saying to Peter, Shall I not drink the cup that God the Father has given me to drink? It was for this purpose that Jesus came. And it is that recognition that leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning with which we will, I will state it and then I want to draw some application points before we close this morning. My sermon in a sentence is this. Jesus surrendered Himself to be betrayed and arrested and ultimately crucified in order to drink the cup of God's wrath so that sinners like you and me, dirty, rotten, Wicked, vile, undeserving, no strength in us could be saved. This clearly points us to the substitutionary atonement of Christ. He took my place. He drunk the cup of God's wrath that was mine to drink. And then He gifts me with a cup of salvation. Jesus Christ was not forced on that cross. They did not drag Him from this garden kicking and screaming. He went there on His own volition and by the will of His Father. Though He was betrayed by Judas, though He was arrested by a mob of Roman soldiers and Jewish temple police, the majestic and the sovereign Christ was in charge of every event that was occurring on that dark night. We must not miss the fact that Jesus went to the cross willingly and in loving obedience to His Father and out of love for us. In a very real sense, that is precisely what Caiaphas, the high priest, John remembers him saying, and he writes that there, verse 40 writes in verse 14, John reminds us that the high priest, earlier words from back in chapter 11, where Caiaphas had advised the Jewish leaders that it was expedient for one man to die for the people. In Caiaphas' mind, Jesus' death was for political expediency. But in another ironic twist, Caiaphas spoke more true words than he ever thought that he was speaking. You see, it truly was beneficial 
that Jesus died. But the benefit to the world would not actually be political. It was redemptive. Because Jesus died, He died on the behalf of His sheep. In John chapter 10, He says, I am the good shepherd. And He laid down His life for His sheep, for their benefit, on their behalf. He came to drink the cup of God's wrath so that we might be spared. There's tremendous insight that we should zero in on. James Boyce, again, he says that the cup that Jesus speaks about here is the only one of two cups in Scripture. The cup of God's salvation and the cup of God's wrath and every person who has ever lived shall drink from one of them. But those who drink of the cup of salvation by God's grace will drink of it only because Jesus drank of the cup of God's wrath in their place. Do you recognize that? You will only drink of that cup of salvation because of what Christ has done. So there is an important question that I must ask you today. Is that your testimony? Can you say that the cup of God's salvation is yours because you have repented of your sins and you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who willingly went to Calvary's cross to drink the cup of God's wrath that was rightfully yours to drink? Week after week after week after week, I ask this question in some way, shape, or form. And I make no apologies for doing it. But I ask it because it is singularly the most important question that I will ever ask anyone and that you will ever be asked by anyone. And I do this, I ask this question, it is necessary for two primary reasons. The first one is this. If you have not been saved, you will drink the cup of God's divine wrath for eternity and you will suffer in a place that God has created for those who refuse His grace in a place called hell. That is what the Scriptures declare. I have nothing else that I can declare toward you except what the Scriptures declare. And there is only one of two answers for you. You have either trusted in Christ and you will drink of that salvation or you have not trusted in Christ and you will suffer for eternity in hell. So have you been saved? If not, then I appeal to you today. Run to Jesus. Don't walk. Don't take your time. None of us knows how much time we have. Do not slough it off. Do not delay it for another time. The reality is this. The Scriptures declare that all who desire the Lord should seek Him while He may be found and to call upon Him while He is near. And here's what I want you to know. There is no magic formula. There is no top secret procedure that you must go through when you receive His gift of grace. No, it comes purely by acknowledging your sinfulness and your need of salvation. No longer trusting in yourself or any other means, but by placing your unreserved and your total faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and confessing Him as your Lord and your Master. If you will pray that prayer from your heart, the Bible says that God will save you. He will gift you with eternal life, full of joy in His presence. You will enjoy the cup of His salvation forever. I want you to know if you've prayed that prayer, you want someone to help you or to talk with you, talk you through that, please do not leave this place today without grabbing my hand, grabbing Pastor Ted's hand, one of the other pastors here. Grab somebody sitting next to you and say, I want to pray to receive Christ. Do not leave this place today without that. 
If you're online worshiping with us, there's a phone number they're going to put on there. Please call that number and say, I want someone to pray with me. I want to know that I know that I know that I have been saved from my penalty of sin. You'll call that number and leave a message. There's going to be somebody calling you back. It is our desire to you, for you to have that security and that understanding that Jesus Christ is your Savior. That's the first reason that I ask that question every single week, and I don't apologize for it. The second reason that I ask that question every single week is this. If that is your testimony that you have been saved, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, if that is your testimony that your sins have been forgiven because you've trusted in Christ who died and rose again, then what I recognize is that you and I can never fathom the depths to which Christ went to bear our sin debt. We can never completely understand and imagine the suffering and the shame and the humiliation that He endured. But what I want you to know is far more than just the torture to which He was exposed is the fact that drinking the cup of God's divine wrath against sin caused Him great torture in His soul. Jesus Christ endured what it meant to be forsaken by God. In fact, on the cross, He cried out, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? You and I will never fully understand that cry of dereliction, but I do believe we can understand this. Our Lord's willingness to drink the cup of God's wrath so that we might be able to drink the cup of His salvation was nothing less than the greatest display of love that man has ever seen. And in the words of Isaac Watts, who wrote the hymn that our choir sang for us this morning, love like that, love so amazing, and so divine. It demands my soul. It demands my life. It demands my all. So as I close this morning, let me ask you, if you are a Christian today, if you have been saved by God's grace and mercy through Christ's sacrifice, then have you committed your soul and your life and your all to Him? If Christ is yours then can He say, you are mine? If Christ is yours, are you His? Are you sold out completely for Him? Unreservedly and without hesitation willing to go wherever He sends you and to do whatever He asks you to do? If you cannot answer that question with a clear and resounding yes, then you need to focus back on what Christ has done for you. You need to be reminded just as I need to be reminded that Jesus said that those who would be His disciples must leave everything else behind and come and follow Him by taking up their cross daily. Brothers and sisters, if our hearts are to be truly prepared to celebrate the resurrection of the life that Jesus had come to lay down for us, then we must look to the cross upon which He died. And we must realize that there is no other salvation than that which He offers. And there is no other way to live than in complete submission to Him in love and gratitude for what He has done. Jesus went to that garden on that night and He surrendered Himself to be betrayed and arrested and crucified in order to drink the cup of God's divine wrath so that you and I 
might drink the cup of God's divine salvation. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. And to Christ be all the glory and all the honor and all the praise and all God's people said. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank You for Your goodness and we thank You for the clear understanding of what You teach us in Your Word that our hearts are to always melt and bow before You. There is no other God. There is no other that we can bow before. So I pray that just in these quiet moments that we spend here at the end of this time studying your word, that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction. Just as I prayed at the beginning, convict us of the sin in our lives. Convict us of the rebellion of which we are guilty. For some, that may mean that they need to trust you to be their Lord and Savior for the very first time. My prayer is that they would not look for finding all kinds of reasons and excuses for why they can't do that or shouldn't, but instead that they would be humbled before you and trust you to be their Savior. For the many others of us in this room, I pray that the the thought of what you have done would bring us to a point of submission and obedience that surpasses what our commitment has been prior to now. You are calling many of us to a deeper, obedient walk with you. And I pray that that call would be met with a resounding yes, Lord. This is my prayer. And I pray it in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen.